there are very few things that are full of mystery and perhaps more unnerving than the deeps of the sea. On land, I feel like I belong, even if there are things that could cause me harm. But the way it feels swimming or floating along in a place where the waters are so vast that it's an endless cascading possibility of something coming to say hello and no one knowing what happens when we meet our end. I dive into that with the first part of The Ocean is Much Deeper Than We Thought. They told me you were experienced in harsh waters, James said, as he pointed out the pearls of sweat that had formed on my forehead. Yeah, I do, I replied moments before hurling the remnants of a less than appetizing lunch off the side of our ship. It's just that you look a little green around the gills, he continued with a smirk. We just met a few hours ago. I've been airlifted to the USS Orion, a sea lift handling abyssal transport capsules for classified project conducted by the U.S. Navy. I guess they failed to mention that I'm much better underwater in submarines, I shot back. Considering the circumstances, his casual demeanor left an uncomfortable atmosphere among the workers. They all knew that what my, visit, what my visit entailed, but just like myself, they were scant with information. All I knew was that there might be a contagious infection at the bottom of the ocean, and my job was either to disprove it or to confine the entire crew aboard the station. As soon as we were positioned securely on top of the Tonga Trench, we were rushed into the transport capsule, a minuscule vertical submarine designed simply to take us to the base of the ocean floor, 20,000 feet below us, Talos. I entered the sub, feeling excited, while also dreading the return to the deep blue. It had been 10 years since serving as a hospital corpsman, one of the few actually stationed aboard a submarine. Over the years, I clearly lost the natural sense I once had for the ocean, yet I longed desperately for it. Whenever you're ready, Doc, one of the crew members said, impatiently waiting for us to drop into the abyss. I raised my thumb as if, as ready as I'll ever be, go ahead. Ten feet, the twilight zone. The impact with the ocean slightly shook, lightly shook the capsule, and as we submerged, my nausea quickly diminished, and a sense of peace washed over my mind. I was back. Outside the window, a few curious fish accompanied our journey downwards. Various sea life attractive to the cargo ship, following to see us off. James piloted the miniature sub, having done the trip a thousand times before, it wasn't anything new to him. Myself, I'd never been below 2,000 feet. I'd never been able to look through the window and admire the mostly unexplored blue world. 3,300 feet, the midnight zone. As we sank deeper toward the abyss, the last strays, stray rays of sunshine vanished. We'd left the realm of sunshine and mankind, all in favor of the domain of darkness. First time in the abyss, right? James asked after a long bout of silence. Yeah, served aboard a submarine for a few years, but they never go very deep. This, uh, this is something else. He smiled at me. Well, you're in for a treat then. We're going all the way down. Taos is right at the edge of the trench. Ain't nothing quite like it. Any sea life once curious about our sub had long since retreated toward the brighter areas. The rapidly increasing pressure had proven hostile to most, but with some resilient little creatures had found a way to thrive in places once thought to be lifeless. The miracles of the ocean. Within an hour, we had reached a depth of 10,000 feet. Beyond the 15-inch glass pane, separating us from certain depth lied nothing but everlasting darkness. For all we knew, the two of us could have been all that existed in that void, if not for the sound of the outer hole settling under the pressure, a constant reminder about the vastness of the ocean. To distract myself from the unsettling, creaking sound, I asked James about the only thing I could think about. Uh, why don't you tell me more about what happened down here? James acted casual that far, but my question quickly changed his nonchalant expression to that of a frown. They briefed you on the surface, didn't they? 
Of course, but that'll have to do, he said firmly. 13,100 feet, the abyssal zone. The world outside hypnotized me, staring so far into nothing. Knowing there could be a world, a full world, only a couple of feet before you was so bizarre. I never experienced true darkness until that day, and to think a good portion of Earth's life had existed within it for millions of years terrified me. When I served aboard the USS Catatasha, my captain explained why they don't put windows on submarines. They told stories of shipmates going crazy after years at sea, that the isolation or distance from the mainland had never bothered any of them. He firmly believed that the staring into the ocean and pondering its secrets was what truly drove men from their sanity, and to combat this, they never put windows on their vessels. But it was clearly a telly made up, seeing what truly obliged beyond the surface brought us back these memories. Maybe he was right after all. My sinister thoughts were interrupted by a dim light appearing in the distance, a red dot dancing blissfully up and down, getting closer to our little sub. It was a jellyfish. Would you look at that, James said as he pointed to the little creature so fragile yet defying the deep sea pressure. Another light joined in, and then a few more, and before long a symphony of pulsating crimson lights formed around our capsule, welcoming us with the warmth of a thousand stars, making up their own little galaxy thousands of feet below the surface. It was the most magnificent thing I'd ever seen, a bloom of jellyfish happily existing in such hostile conditions. I couldn't help but feel impressed. They're called uh, Atola jellyfish, uh, James stated. They don't usually venture down this far, but there's something about this place that seems to attract them. I usually see a few of my journeys down here, but never anything like this. I just nodded in response, too mesmerized by the sight to notice what he said. But as quickly as they had appeared, they had vanished, once more leaving us in absolute darkness. Listen, Doc, I'm sorry about the outburst earlier, James said. I turned towards him, turning my back to the darkness for the first time. It made me feel vulnerable. You gotta understand, this ain't something we usually deal with, and Mike, well, I've known him most of my life. I know this much sucks, believe me, but I'm trying to get as much info as possible for all our sakes, I said. Well, there's nothing I could tell you anyway. The airlock's been a lockdown the past few days, and we've been under strict orders not to open it until you deem it safe to do so. I didn't ask any further questions. I dealt with the contagions ever since leaving the Navy, and 90% of the time there were simple overreactions. 19,700 feet, the ocean basin. For the first time since we left the ship, the radio came to life, emitting a static sound, one that slowly took shape the man's voice. James, James, can you hear me? Loud and clear, clear, Captain. We got a man from the CDC with me as well. We're about ready to dock. Great, the crew's getting impatient. We, the radio started breaking up. Ah, damn, the radio's. Dock at Station A, don't. And it shut off completely. Welcome to the Abyssal Zone, James said. The radio's been acting strange lately, giving us... Uh, state-of-the-art station, but comms from the last millennium. Through the window, we could see a massive dome lit up by hundreds of lights. Three paths stretched from its center, each lit up by different colors, making sectors A, B, and C. There was something else lit by the, by the station's light. At first, just obscured figures leaving shadows on the sand. But as we got closer, I realized they were fish. Hundreds, if not thousands, of dead sea creatures litter, littering the ocean bed, their corpses mangled from the intense pressure. Christ, what the hell's up with the fish? I asked, horrified. Same as the atoll, something attracts them down here. They swim until their bodies break under the pressure, and when they sink, what could possibly do that? There are a few theories, but from what we can tell, it's a sound that we hear periodically from the trench. The docking process itself took quite some time. The outer hull had changed ever so slightly due to the high pressure, just enough that fitting into the station proved a challenge. And the doors finally opened, and I stumbled inside the, outside the capsule, greeted by three of the crew members aboard. You were the doctor, right? The oldest of them asked. That's correct, I said as I reached out his hand, my hand to introduce him. 
self. The name's Robert Lewis. I'm the captain assigned to Talos, he said as he shook my hand. Thank you for coming this far. I know it's not the most pleasant journey. He seemed polite enough, though clearly sleep-deprived with bloodshot eyes and greasy hair. This is Jennifer Burke, one of our biologists, and this is Henry Gale, our technician, he said. They both shook my hand, neither making eye contact as they did. Hey, Kappa, where's Abby? James asked. Still at Section B. She's not doing too well, and I'm sure you can understand, he responded. James nodded. Let's talk, Robert said as he gestured for me to follow. All we hear is narrow, dimly lit up with lights that flickered and constant creaking emitting from the walls. It looked disproportionate considering how large it all seemed from the outside. And rather, and as a rather tall guy, I had to crouch down to keep my head from knocking into the ceiling. I'm sorry about the grim mood, Robert said. It's the first time we're dealing with something like this. I'm assuming they told you about the situation on the surface, he asked. They did, but I have to admit, I'm a bit fuzzy on the details. As are we. Mike put himself in lockdown as soon as he returned to the station. We haven't had the clearance to open it up yet. Hey, he, uh, Mike didn't give any good reasons, I asked. He never got the chance. He fell over dead the second he hit the button. Robert led us to the central dome. In contrast to the hallways, it was a pleasant surprise. A large living space filled with furniture and personal effects. I had not known better. Had I not known better, I would have believed that we were still on the surface. Mike discovered some microorganisms down in the trench. A new type of parasite, he said. He claimed they were able to withstand any amount of pressure, which isn't a surprise down here, but he also explained that they were completely unaffected by rapid changes in the environment, Robert said as he headed inside the office. Did he believe it was contagious, I asked. Seeing as though he was our microbiologist, I can't really come up with another fathomable conclusion. Needless to say, we destroyed all the samples, but we still don't know why he put himself into lockdown. Robert sighed but that's not the strangest thing. I waited patiently for him to continue while he tried to form words he had clearly trouble believing himself. We lost him down in the trench for three entire days. The tracking system failed and the comms went down. We did whatever we could, but it was futile. Even if we had found him, he only had enough oxygen for ten hours, so unfortunately we presumed he had died. Then out of nowhere, his tracker reappeared on our systems, showing that he was moving back up the Tonga elevator. And though he never responded to any of our attempts to contact him, he was clearly alive. How? It's impossible, yet it happened. Once we let him into the station, he simply locked it down and fell over dead on the ground. Before Robert could continue, the technician walked into the office. When you examine him, be careful not to damage the EPM suit. It's highly... This is hardly the time, Robert commanded, glaring at him. I'm just saying, this is a billion-dollar project. Why don't you go get the equipment for our doctor here, Robert demanded, getting more agitated by the minute. Look, Captain, if you would just let me go into the airlock, I could take all the necessary precautions. Absolutely not. Do you think headquarters would have sent down the damn CDC if they thought we could handle it? For Christ's sake, Henry, you know your limits. The technician left and quickly returned with a modified hazmat suit and some surgical supplies we moved toward on uh, towards Section B. Unlike the hallways we traversed before, these were large and well lit up. As we arrived at the airlock, we found Abby standing before the glass door, staring longingly at Mike's lifeless body. Abby, Robert said. I know, I know. It's time, she responded as she turned around. Oh, you're the doctor, she asked, her eyes red and voice trembling. I nodded. You'll figure out what did this to him, won't you? I, I just don't understand. Abby, why don't you come with me while they work, Robert said. You don't need to see this. As Robert led her back to the central dome, Henry started unpacking the cart of medical supplies, including isolation drapes for the, and the hazmat suit. All right, I'm going to guide you through this. No need to mess up a perfectly good EPM suit, Henry said. What does EPM mean anyway, asked. Exoskeletal pressure modulator, Henry said, as it was the most obvious thing in the world. 
James and Jennifer helped me seal the hazmat suit while Henry hung up the isolation drapes. I stepped through while Jennifer entered a code behind me and did open the airlock. My ears popped as they sealed the door shut behind me. Both the drapes and the airlock were transparent, meaning they could observe everything I did. In addition to the mounted camera on my shoulder for closer view displayed on a monitor on the other side. Just by the control panel, Mike lay dead, wearing a massive black suit, looking more like a robotic piece of machinery than diver's gear. There were several cables and hooks hanging them from the ceiling, and just turning them over was a massive task, as he weighed about half a ton wearing the suit. His face was pale as a sheet, with thin streaks of blood pouring from every available orifice. The eyes were red from conjunctival bleeding and completely ridding them from any white. I'm ready, I said. All right, the first thing I'll need to do is to simply inspect the suit. Look for any breaches in the integrity. It shouldn't be possible, but in the unlikely event that something broke through, a self-healing mesh should have been formed. It looks kind of gray. I looked over every inch of his suit from top to bottom. There, his feet, Henry yelled. Sure enough, there was a patch of gray that stood out from the matte black metal covering the rest of him. Something actually perforated his suit, Henry said, surprised. I got closer, giving a better view on the monitor. Clearly, the puncture wasn't what killed him, though, he added. I had to agree with that assessment. Any breach not sealed off with a, any breach not sealed off with a, a nanosecond would have immediately crushed him, but it seemed that the mesh had replaced whatever penetrated the suit at the same time it was removed. Next, attach the cables to his shoulder. They're color-coded, so it should be easy enough. I attached the cables as instructed, which caused the suit to light up and, the, and start unhinging. The front of the suit opened up, revealing Mike's completely mangled body. What the hell? James asked. That's not pressure damage. Henry responded. Mike's ribs were broken outwards, though they did not, had not appeared torn apart his flesh. His chest seemed to have expanded almost twice his normal size. I continued to remove the helmet, pulling it off his head. I looked into his eyes for a brief moment, baffled at what I could have caused his internal organs to essentially explode. For the briefest moments, it seemed like his eyes moved to meet my gaze. Did you just see that, I asked? No one said a word. We'd all just stared at Mike, waiting for something to happen. His eyes moved again, darting in a random direction, and he started gargling, violently contracting his chest. Oh God, he's still alive, Jennifer asked. He opened his mouth, letting out thousands of massive worms pour into the floor. They immediately crawled in every direction, up the walls and into the ceiling, onto the ceiling, desperately searching for a way out. Mike continued to spew out, spew out more slimy worms. His mouth tore open in the process, leaving his jaw completely unhinged before falling off. Once all the worms seemed to exit his corpse, his chest tore open, revealing even larger worms. It quickly became apparent that all his organs had been consumed, replacing it with disgusting creatures. Some of them started clinging to my suit as I swatted them in panic. None of the others knew what to do. They could only stare at me, flailing around. As the worms touched each other, their flesh contemporarily fused, forming longer versions of themselves, growing in size and then breaking off again. They wrapped around my arms and legs and begged for someone to help me. But what could they do? Hang in there, Henry yelled as he fumbled the panel for the airlock. Within seconds, a few small taps emerged from the ceiling, spinning what could have only assumed was liquid nitrogen. Whatever it was, the worms froze in place, freezing to the point where I could break them in tiny pieces. It only took a moment when all the worms had been killed off. And though my suit had partially protected me from the cold, I collapsed exhausted and shivering onto the ground. Get me the fuck out of here, I demanded, knowing fully well they couldn't do that until I dealt with the infestation. Robert had just returned in time to see the commotion was about, and upon seeing what remained of Mike lying torn to pieces on the ground, he stopped in his tracks. After a minute of catching my breath, I got some sense back. With morbid sense of humor and functioning on autopilot, I turned towards Henry. Sorry, but the suit isn't going to be salvaged. We're ejecting the whole fucking airlock as soon as I get out of here. Henry turned to Robert, pleading for him to make me reconsider, despite what we'd all just witnessed, but Robert took my side. After removing the recording unit from the EPM suit, I packed the entire thing into an easily ejectable container, only made sure that no worms remained on my suit. 
All I took was a, simple, a, a small sample of a frozen worm packed into a vacuum container. I exited the airlock and handed them the, the sample over to Jennifer. She prepared the uh, she had prepared the previous parasites brought back by Mike, and I told her to get everything ready so I could determine what we were dealing with. Robert started the procedure of ejecting the airlock's content, including what remained of Mike in the EPM suit. Henry pouting the whole time. James hadn't, mo hadn't moved an inch since the event. He turned, but he had turned sickly pale as he just realized the severity of the situation. We have to tell him, Captain. He said after quietly after a few minutes. Tell me what? Asked while getting out of the hazmat suit. Robert took a deep breath, mulling over his options. You're right. Tell me what? I repeated. And we continue to part two, the real reason why we're stationed down here. Death can be a beautiful thing, beyond all the stigma associated around the event. It's the beginning of a world that starts directly from the end of another. When a whale dies in extreme depths, they sink towards the ocean floor where the entire ecosystems arise from the decomposing bodies. This is called a whale fall. Mike's EPM suit had left behind three days of footage. Henry was put to the task of preparing it for viewing. While we couldn't save him nor the suit, we could at least figure out how Mike died. As we waited, the captain decided it was time for me to learn the truth about their mission and why no one on the surface had ever heard of the scientific wonder that was Talos. You saw the dead sea creatures littering the ocean floor around the station, Robert asked. I recall the hundreds of mangled bodies of flesh, not the most welcoming sight to the abyss. James told me something about them compelled to dive down here, some sort of sound. Robert nodded as he pulled up to a computer. After a moment of fumbling, he clicked on a sound file. About five years ago, five years ago, we recorded this coming from the depths of the Tonga Trench. It was an oddly synthetic sound, like a whale's mating call had been pitched down and jumbled around, and in the midst of it all was something that sounded like a whisper. They recorded something similar on the Mariana Trench, and they called it the Biotwang, Robert said. They played it on loop as we talked, oddly eerie for something so innocent. We first thought it came back from a whale, but just a bit distorted after traveling vast distances or instrumental interference, but then we saw how it affected the wildlife in the region. Blooms of jellyfish appearing out of nowhere and fish defying all instincts to dive towards the crushing pressure. What made the sound then, I asked. Robert pulled up some pictures on the screen, creatures similar to roundworms, but pitch black, they look nothing like they, that I just witnessed in the airlock, however. From what I can tell, there is a thus far uncompletely undiscovered ecosystem somewhere down in the trench, isolated for millions of years. Unaffected by mass extinction events, they have evolved quite differently from life we see on the surface. It's like millions of single-cell organisms working together to form a more complex creatures, but unlike ourselves, the cells can detach and rejoin at will. We've, we've named it the Synctium. That's what killed Mike. They could be part of it, but what we just saw in the airlock is a far larger than the microorganisms we have gathered here. Before we can continue, James interrupted, letting us know the footage was ready to be viewed. If they ever decide to declassify the existence of this situation, they'll never mention the creatures, nor the sound that alerted us to their presence. I'm sure one day they'll hail us all a supreme technological advancement, but truth be told, the reason that the Navy put billions and billions of dollars into this project so that humanity could traverse the ocean floor is simply because they want to find whatever's making that sound and find a way of using it. Camp, they're waiting for us, James said. We gathered in the central area. Abby and sat in the back some distance away from everyone else. She seemed even worse for wear than before, frail as if she'd lost weight in a couple of hours since meeting her. Henry controlled the footage, ready to speed through the important bits, as the descent itself was quite slow. 20,000 feet, the Haddle Zone. Everything we saw would from Mike's, be from Mike's point of view. The footage started on the airlock, Abby standing before him with a concerned expression on her face. Don't worry, I'll be back before you know it. 
It's not like my first time in the depths. It's not like they had wasted a billion dollars on me dying anyway. She didn't seem consoled by his words. This time is different. We haven't tested the suit beyond 30,000 feet yet, she said. No, but we've tested pressure. The suit should be able to handle much further before breaking. Henry forwarded the footage. Mike stood directly at the edge of the Tonga Trench, and his left platform extended even further down towards the handle zone. An elevator sat at the platform center. A short distance down the trench, he saw endlessly long tendrils, gently swaying with the current. They belonged to the body of a malformed creature, looking like it couldn't possibly control its long appendages, yet it seemed unfazed by the depths. Guys, are you seeing this? He said excitedly as he pointed at the bizarre being. It's a magnapena squid. He almost jogged along to the edge to get a better view of the suit, audibly exhausted by the effort. Don't put too much strain on the suit, Henry interjected over the radio. I'll be fine. It'll be fine. What else did they pay for, Mike said. As he got closer to the squid, another popped up behind it, one with even longer appendages. Damn, I never thought I'd see one up close. Stop messing around and get on the elevator, Henry demanded. Fine. Let's not enjoy our jobs then, Mike responded. He boarded the elevator and strapped himself in. Journey would take him another 15,000 feet into the abyss. It was a loud, sturdy piece of machinery that able to withstand the immense pressure of the dreaded Haddle Zone. Mike himself would control the speed of the descent, only handing over the control to Henry should something happen. Not long after the descent started, Mike stalled the elevator. The suit is making weird noises, he said. That's normal. It's adjusting to the pressure change. We told you that would happen the deeper you got, Henry explained with an annoyed tone. Yeah, I know, but you'll be fine. 27,000 feet. Once more, Mike stopped the elevator, directing his gaze at the edge sticking out from the cliffside. On it lay the corpse of a bowhead whale, almost half a planet away from its natural habitat. The whale had been partially hollowed out, riddled with deep sea eels and tiny eyeless fish, an entire ecosystem thriving from its death. How did that whale get here, Mike asked. It died like all the other creatures down here, Henry said. Yeah, but it's a bowhead, at least. I think it is. Don't they live around the Arctic? Henry sighed. Just continued the descent. 35,433 feet, horizon deep. The elevator reached the bottom of the trench after about an hour, allowing Mike to finally unbuckle himself from his seat. He grabbed a box of beacons to allow the next person to easier navigate the area. After stepping off the platform and getting away from its bright lights, it became abundantly clear that the bottom of the ocean was far from empty, and the entire bed was covered with previously undiscovered life. Millions of fungal-like plants covering the floor and transparent fat shrimp swimming between, apparently feeding off of them. On the cliff wall itself, thousands of bioluminescent, bioluminescent plants extended, just a stalk of a blue bowl bending in the direction of Mike's movement. It was hauntingly beautiful, looking as alien as anything from another planet. It continued along the cliffside, putting down a beacon every hundred feet or so. I half expected this place to be horrible, Mike said, you know, being named after the god of underworld and all. No one responded to his comment. Guys, you can still hear me, right? Yes, Mike, we can hear you, Henry said. We're here to work, not make stupid quips. Has anyone ever told you how much better life could be if you at least try to enjoy it, Henry? Stop being a killjoy. We're making history down here. Henry didn't respond. How about you hand Abby the radio? Hell, I'd rather listen to Captain Ramble about protocol going on and on. Mike stopped dead in his tracks, reaching the end of the cliff. Before him was a steep fall, leading to an endless chasm of darkness. Henry, are you sure the elevator took me all the way down to the trench? He asked as he stared into the abyss. Yes, you're about 35,000 feet. Well, it's just that I'm standing at the edge of the cliff and it's clearly not the bottom of the ocean. That's impossible. We surveyed, surveyed the entire area with sonar. Well, I'm telling you. The ground beneath Mike crumbled to pieces. He slid off the edge of the cliff and dove further into the deep. 
The darkness now surrounding him was absolute. Nothing could possibly help him orient himself as he fell. The fall in the ocean was a much slower process, giving him time to think about what fate awaited him as he sunk to the depths never known before by mankind. He called out for his crew members, while desperately clawing at the cliff. But even with the suit, he was unable to slow his descent. As he got deeper, the suit started emitting loud beeps, alarms to alert rapid pressure changes exceeding 16,000 PSI. But before he could even react, he hit the ground hard. Night fell silent, passed out from the impact. Questionable depth of feet. The void. Minutes after landing at unknown depths, Mike awoke to the sound of a suit beeping. The suit had held its ground and was starting to adjust to the new pressure. The manometer was broken, and with the tracking device malfunction, we could only guess how far he'd fallen. Mike grunted as he got to his feet, taking some time to figure out what had just happened. Henry, you there? He finally said, no response. Captain, anyone? Apart from a few malfunctioning instruments, most of the suit seemed intact, but with no contact could be made with the base. Everything past that point would be after the comms went down, and we all patiently waited for to learn of Mike's fate. Despite having fallen far beyond what we believed to be the ocean floor, he had just landed on another plateau. With an endless distance still progressing downwards, the abyss ever-present haunting us with its emptiness. Please respond, he begged, defeated. He activated the beacon still attached to him and checked his surroundings. He had landed directly in front of a cave, leading inside the cliff wall and moving steeply outwards and upwards. While protocol strictly dictated to wait for the rescue in these situations, we could, he could hear the gargle sound emitting from the cave. Whatever it was, it compelled Mike decided to check what was in the cave. The walls inside were perfectly smooth, an impossible formation of rocks reflecting the bright light shining from the EPM suit, lighting up the cave as far as it stretched. Mike stared at the shiny well, walls for a moment, adjusting the light. They had seemed smooth at an angle, but when the light was pointed directly at him, it was he had uncovered bizarre patterns like symbols not corresponding to any known language. While he studied the symbols, a loud sound shook through the cave, almost sweeping Mike off his feet. It sounded similar to that of the biotwang. But with slight differences, the rhythm has changed. It seemed to put Mike further into a trance, and he diligently followed the source, ignoring any chance of rescue. The further he went. The cave led to a much larger cavern, extending beyond the reach of any light source he had available. Unlike the tunnel, these walls weren't smooth but they were covered in millions of tiny holes, each perfectly round, each identical to the last. Upon further and closer inspection, the holes weren't empty, but filled with worms, just like the ones we've seen spew out his body inside the airlock. They wriggled and reached for Mike as he walked through the cavern, pulled towards the sound in the distance, getting louder with each passing step. The deeper he got, the less he seemed distracted by the holes, which were growing in size alongside the worms. Mike's only hypnotic objective was to reach the sound. On top of the worms, spindly, long-legged creatures walked across. They looked like shellless spider crabs, dipping their limbs into the worms, emerging temporarily while seeming to feed them. For each dip into the holes, their limbs grew shorter while the worms expanded. Eventually, he reached a corner of the cavern, and with the source of the sound, it was half-consumed whale calf attached to the wall, bound by hundreds of massive worms extending into its torn flesh. Despite being half-eaten and broken beyond any chance at life, it somehow didn't succumb as if the worms had kept it alive. Involuntary life support repurposed for their own needs. The calf gaped its open, half-eaten jaw. So mangled, Mike could see straight into the vocal cords, which were covered with the worms, tugging and moving them into position. The whale screamed, emitting another jumbled sound that pulled Mike even closer. While Mike was so distracted, several worms had emerged from their holes, rapidly swarming around him. Within seconds, they joined together, wrapping around his legs and climbing up the suit. 
It temporarily brought Mike back to sanity as he tried to tear the worms off, but they were faster than him, trapped inside a slow metal box. He stumbled to the ground, allowing more worms and their spindles to cover each of his limbs. The creatures merged together, forming a sheet of flesh that soon covered his entire body. Mike fell silent, and the camera showed nothing but flesh-colored masks. Muffling any audio save for Mike's panicked breath, he screamed as a loud bang almost broke the speakers. The sound was a suit being perforated, and the mesh filling the hole. We found in the soles of his feet the creatures had gotten inside his suit, digging into his flesh, Mike crying in agony before falling silent. We all stood speechless. In front of the monitor now, displaying nothing but a timer, proving the camera was still running, Abby had left with James allowing, following to console her. That can't be it, Robert said. Let me forward it, Henry said, half-whispering in shock. We forwarded through the three days of almost nothing while the worms incubated inside Mike, trapped alone in the cavern, no one knowing where he was. The camera started clearing up and the flesh sheet peeling off as if the view showed that Mike had returned to the elevator. During the three days in the trench, the synchthium had occupied, covering it with their fleshy appendages. Mike was controlling it, or whatever remained of him inside the suit. He wandered towards the station, flakes of synchthium flesh flailing off of him for each step. His crew called up for him over the radio now that they could reach him, but Mike could do nothing but gargle his worms that consumed most of his lungs. At the airlock, he stumbled inside, ready to unleash hell within the station, but for a brief moment, Mike managed to halt himself. Perhaps the thought of hurting those he loved was enough for him to stop and temporarily gain control. Just enough time to shut down the airlock, putting himself into lockdown. Mike collapsed to the ground. He had died days ago, but, this, but his will remained even though he turned into nothing more than a vessel for the horrors that now carried within them. The footage ended. We stood in silence for a moment. None of us dared to speak. A word about Mike's cause of death. I hardly believed it, despite having almost fallen victim to the same fate. Henry, call headquarters. Tell them we're shutting this project down, Robert said, breaking the silence. Jennifer destroyed the sample from the airlock. It is still sealed, right? Jennifer nodded before heading towards the lab. We need to make sure whatever this is, it stays in the abyss. I joined Henry as he attempted to call headquarters. The radio returning, nothing more than jumbled static. Robert was checking all the security feeds, sending out drones to scavenge for the sync team at the elevator. Captain, the comms are completely down. I can't get any signal. On the security feed, we saw the flesh of the sink team had stretched along the ground, covering some of the corpses of fish that littered the ocean floor. It was impossibly large, using the elevator and platform as a scaffold for climbing up towards the station. A loud metallic clang sounded through the station, followed by an alarm. What the hell was that, I asked. Hull breach, Sector C, an automated voice said. Isolate it, Robert demanded. What about just do it? Henry frantically tried to navigate the security system, attempting to get an idea as to the extent of the damage. What's in Sector C? I asked. It's the lab. Fucking hell up. Jennifer didn't get there yet, Henry said. While the station sealed, trapping anyone inside, another loud bang shook us. The alarm sounded. Hull breach. Sector B. Fuck, fuck, fuck. What now? Henry asked. Robert stood still in shock. Frozen by the decision of saving the station or fleeing. We have to evacuate, was all he could say. Most of my crew... After leaving the Navy, struggled to get over their longing for the ocean. Such was the case of my submarine captain, Lewis Johnson. He always claimed that sea would be his final resting place, where he truly belonged. And following his honorable discharge, he went straight into the hyperbaric pipeline welding. It's a dangerous job where the only enemy is invisible, always stalking, is invisible, always stalking each dive, each new mission, a foe that can't be sensed, but with the ability to destroy everything you are in a split second. Pressure. Maybe I'm cursed, unable to live on land with my own people, but at least I'll die where I belong, he had said. Johnson would be lucky enough to forever be united with his one true love, a sight of a burst pipe that took him away, finally making him one with the deep blue. 
It's funny how the brain operates as everything around you is falling into pieces. Far beyond your own control, once there's nothing left you can do, the mind turns into a place of safety, fond memories from a time long since past. For those memories, mine belonged to the time in service, to my old captain and my crew. It wasn't an easy time, but it was filled with purpose, with my problems solely confined to the ocean. When Robert yelled at me to get my ass in gear, I finally snapped back into reality. Doc, come on, we gotta get the hell out of here, he shouted. James returned to the central dome alongside Abby. They'd heard the alarms, but hadn't the faintest idea of what occurred during their brief absence. Get to section A. There are still two transport capsules. Get number 05 ready for departure and wait for me, Robert said. Cap, what are you gonna do, James asked. Jennifer's in lockdown and I'm getting her out. What if the creatures got inside, Abby asked. Robert thought about it for a moment before handing her a walkie. If you don't hear from me in 15, just leave. The station shook as another hole was torn through the sections. My ears popped from the shockwave. I'm coming with you, James said. You're not facing them alone. No, we need you to pilot the transport capsule. If you get hurt, we're stuck down here. It wasn't a valid excuse. They all knew fully well the submarine was easy enough for any of the crew members to maneuver, but Robert refused to risk any more lives and would use whatever reason he could to come up with. Cap, please. That's an order. Get out of here. Now. They hesitantly agreed before leaving. I'll join you then. I know nothing about this station or the sub, but I can at least assist you should something happen, I said, knowing he couldn't come up with any excuse to stop me. He reluctantly agreed, and together we headed for the labs in Section C, worrying that Jennifer might be trapped behind the airlock, or worse. Drowning is a horrible way to die. Once you realize there's no way to reach the surface, that you're trapped in a cold, dark tomb, your throat simply closes up. No matter how hard you try to inhale, your body simply refuses. Even as the agonizing pain of running out of air overpowers your natural instinct to breathe, breathe, you simply refuse to give in to the overwhelming desire. It isn't until the body starts shutting down and the corners of your vision start to darken that you reach the breaking point and your brain decides to pull something in, regardless of whether air is present or not. Suddenly, ice-cold water flows in through your throat, unstoppably filling your lungs, so desperate for air. It's a clumsy, painful way to go. By the time water has filled each part, we are still conscious with just enough time to regret that decision we've ever entered the ocean. I thought it was funny as we ran to the airlock that at least one of at least we wouldn't drown. Surely the worms would consume us, or the pressure from the collapsing station would instantly crush us. How did the hole get breached anyway? I asked as we got closer. It's supposed to be impossible, but I'm sure it's those fucking monsters, Robert said. The alarm had stopped alerting us to the hole breach and was now recommending a station-wide evacuation. Warning, hole integrity severely compromised. All of the crew report to the designated docking stations, it said. How much time do we have? Not enough. As we turned the corner at Section C, we saw Jennifer sitting against a wall on the wrong side of the airlock. It took a moment to realize the horrors of her situation where saw her legs fused with the flesh of the synctium. They started eating away at her lower body, digging their way into her flesh and rapidly replacing her organs with her own meat. Despite all this, she remained conscious. Jen, Robert said, the only word he could muster from the shock of what lay in front of our eyes. She slowly turned her head towards us with eyes red from hemorrhaging as worms had consumed her inside. Captain, is that you? She said weakly, blind from blood filling the inside of her eyes. I'm here, Jen. I guess Semple wasn't dead after all, she joked with a hoarse voice as she coughed up what she could only make sure of blood and lung paraffin. Maybe tell the doctor to double check these things in the future. He's here with me now, Robert explained. I'm so sorry, Jen, but... I know there's nothing left to do. I guess this is just it. She coughed up violently, spewing out pieces of her lung and worms. Don't worry, Captain. It's not your fault that the monster from the mist crawled its way up to destroy us, she said, voice cracking as she writhed in agony. I looked over at Robert. He looked horrified but couldn't take his eyes off of her. It really hurts. Please, just eject S-section, she cried. I don't want it. I just want it to be over, he nodded, forgetting she couldn't see him. 
I went over to the control panel. It was fairly easy to use, especially after witnessing Henry mess with it before. All I needed was the passcode. I thought it would be right to let Robert essentially execute her himself. I'll do it, I assured them. Rob? Jennifer said yes. Don't let these fuckers get to the surface. Promise me that much. I promise. Her abdomen, st abdomen started bulging out. She screamed in pain as the worms started tearing open her stomach. Captain, the code, I said. He told me the numbers, and I input them without hesitating. Years of watching people suffer prolonged death, knowing that we could do nothing but pointlessly extend their lives had desensitized me to pulling the plug. Immediately, the hatches opened up on the walls, and the alarm sounded as water started pouring in, but since the hull had already been partially breached, they quickly collapsed in themselves, and within a few seconds, Jennifer had died. Let's get out of here, Robert said. We ran back towards the central area. We had to traverse the entire station to get towards Section A. It was the only remaining escape, but as we got to the office, we could hear something moving within the walls, knocking their way through the pipes. The pumps, Robert yelled. They're getting through the fucking pumps. Talos pumps were an ancient machinery compared to the rest of the station. As the dome was inserted, they needed to move tons of water outside against the immense pressure. But after finishing the station, they had been long since forgotten, inside, left inside the walls while they installed more permanent solutions. Before we could react, the walls broke open, and the synthium poured itself through the holes, taking the shape of malformed flesh, rapidly and extendedly across the walls. We were cut off from our escape with the only office available as temporary refuge, while oncoming, sw oncoming swarm of worms and flow of flesh, but our safe haven would quickly become nothing more than another present prison to extend our survival. It won't hold them for long, Robert said. What now? Robert went straight for his desk, pulling out the pistol from the top drawer. You brought, you brought a gun to the bottom of the ocean, I asked. You didn't, he shot back. I, Never know when you might need to quell a mutiny, he laughed nervously. He could tell I wasn't amused. We both knew a gun wouldn't slow them down significantly, but any help was welcome. He continued to rummage through the closets in the room, eventually pulling out two unused hazmat suits, just like the one I used for inspecting Mike. He kept you safe and said the airlocks. The worms couldn't penetrate the suit, right? Robert asked with pleading eyes. Look, they breached an EPM suit made of fucking metal. I don't think these things will have a big difference. It might slow them down, but that's it. It's our best shot. Worms had started to pile up on the door, forming a contracting mesh, slightly cracking the glass. It's now or never. James had better have a damn sub ready to go, Robert said as we got into the suits. He fired a shot, but not at the door, but at the tempered glass wall behind it, shattering into a million cubicle pieces as we jumped through. I jumped on the, to the ground, a few worms getting into my, onto my hand as I stood back up. Robert pulled them off of me and shoved me forward. We spurred it for the entrance to Section A. We were far faster than the worms but they'd formed a mesh covering most of the ceiling and dropped down on top of us for each step we took. Another hole in the wall burst open directly above the airlock towards Section A, causing another slump of meat to land on the front of the door. Shit, Robert yelled, instinctively pulled his weapon and fired the mass on the floor. I froze in place as the worms disintegrated from the bullet's impact, reforming hastily crawling towards us. I tried to turn away and run, but I didn't react in time. To my surprise, the worms completely ignored my presence and headed straight for Robert, pouring onto him from all directions, pulling him to the ground. He screamed in agony as they formed around his limbs, making him unable to fight back. I hurried towards him and tried to pull them off, but for each worm I removed, a hundred others joined in. Within seconds, they managed to tear a hole in his armpit region of his suit, and they immediately wriggled themselves through the hole. I desperately tried to pull him up, but he shoved me away as he realized there wasn't any hope left in him. Get out of here, Doc, he gargled as blood started to fill his lungs. I didn't hesitate. Shamefully, I ran for my life while the synctium was too distracted by consuming Robert. No matter what I had done, he was already dead. Always narrowed drastically as I moved toward, more towards Section A, I frankly tried to get the input code to close the airlocks. It took me two attempts with shaky fingers to get the correct code, but within a second the door was sealed. I was once more separated from the abomination on the other side. 
I'm so sorry, Robert, I whispered to myself. The central dome finally gave in under the pressure, under massive streams of water quickly collapsing the ceiling. The station fell apart, and the central power was annihilated under the flood. Plunged into darkness and silence, I ventured further towards the docking station. While each station of Talos supposedly had their own backup generation, for some reason it hadn't been activated yet in that section, making it hard to navigate through the narrow labyrinth of hallways. Can anyone hear me? I called, my voice ending, echoing endlessly. I bumped my head as a light, as I saw a light appearing in the distance. James had come running towards me, holding a flashlight. Doc, you're still with us. Thank God, he said, his joy f quickly fleeting as he had seen I'd come alone. What happened? Where's Jen and the captain? I just shook my head in response. No words could convey what had happened in the dome. And their absence proved enough of the unfortunate outcome of the futile escape attempt. No time to worry about that now. We need to get out of here. The capsule is just about ready to leave for the surface. We need only need Henry to get figure out how to get the power back. When we arrived, arrived at the docking station, I was relieved by the increase in ceiling height, if only so ever so slightly. Henry was busy at work on the control panel, trying to figure out what had cut the power from the backup generator. Happy standing behind him with a flashlight. God damn it, he yelled. Something has torn away the backup generator. Not sure how, but I'm sure it's what. I'm sure I know what. Fucking abysmal demon spawn. He sighed. Between the lack of power and the damaged hull, the sub can't release from the station. Essentially, we're stranded here. None of us spoke a word, trapped in a tin can 20,000 feet below the surface with no transport. After what felt like an eternity, Henry finally broke the silence. They're all great ideas, but that won't work, he sarcastically said in response to our lack of solutions. Well, you got any ideas then, genius? Abby asked. Henry sighed. As a matter of fact, I do. He walked to the capsule, started messing around with the electronics, essentially pulling off one of the panels. There are three batteries powering the sub, and the way I see it, I can take one out, and she should still have enough power to get you to the surface. Us? James asked. I need to connect the battery to the airlock. He continued as he pulled one of them out from the capsule. That'll override the door. It'll blow open from pressure, and a resulting wave of water should forcibly eject the sub. What about you? Abby asked. Well, someone has to stay behind to follow through on the plan. Let me do it then, James interjected. No, you idiot. One wrong connection, the floor door fries, locking forever. I'm the only one with the expertise. There has to, there has to be another way. There isn't. Trust me. James and I looked at each other, both wanting to speak up, but neither able to come up with an alternative situation for a solution. Henry went back to the transport capsule, and he sealed the panel shut again. I wish you were all smarter. Maybe one of you could have stayed behind, he said, as sarcastically as ever, but for the first time with the slightest smirk on his face. Thank you, I said. Well, yeah, time for you to go, he said as he shut the door to the capsule. We watched as Henry walked away for the last time, ready to face his fate, an asshole to the bitter end, but one with a kind heart. Like his other parish crewmates, he would forever remain at the ocean basin, never again witnessing sunlight. Time went on forever while we waited for the wave of water that might as luck likely crush us in an instant, but with a ton of luck, we had to be ejected from the station and from where we could reach the surface. It would be the most violent takeoff in the station's history, but also the last. Minutes later, we heard the sound of the airlock opening before shattering to pieces under the immense pressure of exploding water and sink to old fish. It took only about 10 seconds for the wave to hit us, and we and we shoot out from Talos, the hallway behind us falling apart as we did. It hit us hard and roughed us up a bit, but we survived. James took control of the vessel and didn't hesitate to start ascending towards the surface. Abby and I stared out the tiny window. On the other side, we could see the utterly crushed remains of Talos, dimly illuminated by the light still powering by the generators at Section C, which had completely been covered by the flesh of the Synctium. Thousands of corpses of fish that previously littered the floor had been cleaned up and now were part of the ever-growing monster from the abyss. A wave of relief washed over me with my heart calming down for each foot of our ascension. I no longer felt the need to constantly look out the window. 
The world outside was dark, and whatever life once remained out down there had been consumed along with my longing for the ocean. Once we reached the depth of 5,000 feet in the middle of the midnight zone, we managed to establish contact with the USS Orion and called for an emergency evacuation. They were quite the distance away, but by the time we reached the surface, they'd pick us up, albeit curious to what had happened in the depths. At 3,000 feet, the first rays of sunlight greeted us with the warmth of the sun. The ocean started filling up the peaceful life, fish thriving in the waters, completely ignorant to the horrors that existed directly below them. The vast darkness turned into a calming blue, and for the first time since being hired for this mission, I felt safe. Before long, we reached the surface. We were greeted by a team wearing hazmat suits as we boarded the ship. We'd been unable to alert them to the situation. All they knew is a potential contagion existed in the depths, one we could have brought back with us, so understandably they locked us away in sickbay, isolated from the rest of the crew. For 72 hours, they pricked and prodded us, taking multiple blood samples and even, even a CSF probe. After they all returned normal and no signs of sickness so apparent, they let us in to more comfortable living arrangements as we set for shore. After being released from the sickbay, I hardly saw James and Abby. They spent most of their time in their rooms, only coming out to the occasional interrogation. Headquarters were incredibly curious as how a state of inst- our installation suddenly collapsed, as we had absolutely no proof of the events had transpired. They needed someone to blame, but as part of the CDC and not the original Talisker, I was safe from prosecution. All that was required for me was to sign the non-disclosure agreement, one I'm breaking now to warn you about the horrors of the abyss. We know more about what exists in outer space and we do about life in our own oceans, and that's how it should remain forever. These creatures, the sync team, can't be killed. As long as one single cell remains, it should be enough to restart their hives. And I fear with that consumption of Talos, they have learned about life on the surface. Now I'm posting this, I'm heading for the center of disease control. And I can feel the worms wriggling inside my chest as I type this, ready to burst out at any moment. I guess the suit didn't protect me at all. Hope James and Abby are safe. They got a second chance at living a happy life. I am so sorry for all of this, for what's to come. Well, if that isn't absolutely horrifying to think, this isn't the giant beast down below, but the multitude, the swarm, the flood of death and control and the idea of how horrifying it is to find yourself like that whale or... Or their, or their companion left in a state of death, but held on, in, as they say, involuntary life support, being used and, and, and co-opted in such a way. Incredibly horrifying. And so often I think we do focus on the larger creatures, but not the microorganisms, not, the, not, not, the, not what we faced here in this particular story. So here's what you guys think. How horrifying would it be to find yourself kind of in a state of living death. And would that be more unnerving than the larger particular behemoths that maybe reside down below? Here's what you guys think as always, and thanks and take care.